0: Five, four,
1: three, And welcome back to Not The Public Podcast. Bruce Dobigan with you. Thanks for joining us once again. I think this is our fifth or sixth podcast of the year so far. Uh, on a recent trip to uh, Toronto, yes, I actually go east once in a while just to see how the other half lives. To the holy land, as I call it, of Toronto. Uh, interesting conversation I had with... The, well, first of all, he's the guy who's to blame for me actually being in television. So if you have any beefs, you can take it up with Howard at another point. But hey, anyway, I had a great chat with uh, my mentor, Howard Bernstein. And we are talking about... Journalism, the state of journalism from today back to when we start. When I started, I think he hired me in about 1984. So it's it's a bit of a fair scope. And I thought he and I have no trouble talking, and uh, he'd be an excellent person to do this with. And so uh, Howard Bernstein, welcome uh, to Not the Public Podcast.
0: Thank you, Bruce. Good to talk to you, even at this distance. <laughs>
1: well, give us first of all, for folks, uh, I know you obviously as the executive producer of uh, CBC Toronto News, etc. Back in the '80s, but tell us just a few other things on your resume.
0: Um, I was senior producer of the Journal. Before that, uh, before that, I was uh, head of news specials at CTV. Uh, before that, I was executive producer of Canada M when it was actually a news show, <laughs> probably no one remembers that, and since that time, I uh, I was executive producer of uh, Sunday Morning on CBC Radio, and I was head of news at Global, uh, head of uh, current affairs at uh, TV Ontario, um, and then I had my own company for seven or eight years, producing documentaries.
1: So, you've been busy.
0: Yeah, and I didn't do the print stuff, I left that out. <laughs>
1: I tried to print stuff. It didn't work any better than the TV stuff. Um, (laughs) This is going to be a difficult thing to answer briefly, but give us some sense, like when I walk through the newsroom doors, 1984, when you're hiring me, uh, people are on typewriters, people are smoking furiously in the newsroom, uh, etc. Give us some sense of the constraints of journalism at that point that we faced uh, on a daily basis.
0: Well, I mean, th- truthfully, I think there were less constraints then than there are now. Um, in the sense that we never asked any of our reporters to do more than one story a day. We, uh, you know, we already were in the uh, digital age, so we had the digital cameras and, uh, and we had the, uh, the the tape cameras. We weren't on film anymore, um, and and I think maybe as it turns out, although neither of us saw it this way at that point, it was probably the golden age. Didn't feel like it at the time. You know, everyone always complains about the lack of money and the lack of budget and all of those things. But truth be told, looking back, it was actually a great time when you walked through the newsroom. It was a good time to join us. Bruce, good, good planning.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. Uh, take credit for it yourself. Um, if the thing I remember most about that era is, and I used to do the 6, and I would do the 11 o'clock newscast in Toronto, a sportscast in this case. Yeah. And and if it didn't fit on the 11 o'clock newscast, it didn't go again until 6 o'clock the next day. I don't remember. If, later we had morning shows. But but if it didn't get on by 11, it, it was back at 6 o'clock. How did, how did that kind of thinking change the way we approached the jobs?
0: Um, I, I don't you know I, I that's true it didn't um th- maybe that's what radio was there for <laughs> um if you turned into c b into c b c radio news you would get whatever news was happening in the morning but on television no it was it was, it was six o'clock and eleven but remember in those days there was no twenty four hour news, so you weren't really Getting it anywhere else either. Now that's, I mean, there were local CTV stations had had news uh, newscasts in the morning, but truth be told, they weren't reporting on anything new. It was the repeat of what was on last night at six o'clock, even the following morning.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, but, but. In those days you could you could hold information. Like I could get a story and I can hang on to that information and until it went to air on TV nobody knew about it. And in some respects that affected the way we did journalism, I guess maybe because we had more time, but to me it it gave us a sense of okay, we could develop things a little bit more than we can today.
0: Absolutely. And more important and even more important that you could actually check the facts. You could actually do some research. Uh, nowadays, everyone's competing to be first. No one takes the time, seemingly, or there wouldn't be so many mistakes on air, to to check anything out anymore. It's more important to get on first. And, And that's something I actually have no understanding of. If I'm watching a station, whether it's CNN or CBC, I'm watching that station. I don't know if someone else has it on before that. So yet somehow the competition to get on first among all the stations seems to be there. The, the audience doesn't know anything about it. When they hear it for the first time, that's when they hear it for the first time. It, it, it's a strange, you know, this whole competition in news for speed seems to be so counterproductive to me um, that it, it just, it makes no sense and it's, and it's hurting the product. I don't
1: want to jump ahead too far, but I mean, one of the, one of the things that we're seeing now with social media, and, and Donald Trump's the perfect example of that, is where, the, where the, particip- or the people we were covering are now participants in how they're being covered on social media. In other words, a guy like Trump watches Twitter, how he's been covered, and then it becomes his ability to jump in on the story. We never had that in the past either. The subject could also be firing back at the same time you were covering.
0: No, and, and, and add to that, I mean, just the next step With the 24-hour news cycle and 24-hour news stations, Donald Trump, if he doesn't like something he hears on TV right now, he phones in and gets on instantly, and, and he's on TV answering what someone just said 24 hours a day.
1: I remember when we were doing the, uh, the Allen Eagles and stuff. That I think I started some of that material when you were the exec and then obviously yes. it went on for a long time after that. But I can remember that we were doing pieces he didn't want to be interviewed and, and offering him the airtime to come on live to, to rebut. And, and in those days, people said, oh, boy, what's that kind of a stunt? But today, that would be a very common thing that you would get the person on and sort of give them live airtime and they would think nothing of firing back at you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, you know. When I think back of my time, I remember the first time I had to do something that involved China. It took us two weeks to get the film up from China to Canada, and it was it was film in those days, and and and, and then I remember the time it struck me. I was running Global News at the time when when Tiananmen Square was going on, and we were being asked to go to air live. <laughs> And comment on what was going on in Tiananmen Square, which was, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away, without any research. With all we saw was the same pictures everyone else was seeing, and yet we're commenting live as if we really know what's going on. Um, all this technology has, you know, the ability for someone to come on and rebut, the ability for someone to get on 24 hours a day. I'm not sure that's a good thing because. When Donald Trump or, 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 or any of the other candidates uh, phones in and they say something to us, we're not, we haven't done any research. We're not in a position to know whether they're telling the truth or not. Um, and frankly, half the time when we say when people say something on air now, we, the research wasn't done, and we don't even know what we're saying is true. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, the, the the ability to do that has been completely hampered. And, and of course, that's uh, the industry that we knew at that time in the funding. You called it the golden age. Well, it certainly was the golden age of employment when you could have editors, etc. Uh, I remember when I moved to Calgary to write for the Calgary Herald, we had 11 sports writers and three editors. I think now that the two papers here are merged, I think there's three writers between the two papers and maybe a part-time editor. I mean, that's that's, that's the state of research. That's the state of, of, of being able to, to, to rebut whatever goes on the air.
0: And, and, and to take it one step further, we're asking so much more of them. There were 11 before, and they were all out doing one story a day. Now, the, there's, you say there's three of them. I don't doubt that they're forced to do something for the, for the online version separately from the, from the newspaper, some of them are, are being asked to actually film, like, uh, tape stories for, for online. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's, it's actually, we're asking them to, to do two, three, four stories a day, even on the one story they're covering. Do they, have, do they actually have time to check the background? Do they have time to do any research? I don't see how. Um, one of the things that I tell people, I and mean, it's, it's people say, oh, journalists, you know, the young journalists, they're terrible. I don't think, I believe that no, no, at no time in history were journalists better prepared and better educated than they are today. But never before has, has a journalist been asked to do as much work as they do today.
1: As when I watch when I watch the coverage of the U.S. Ele- election, I'll watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, whatever it is, and they'll have a reporter traveling with quote unquote the Trump or the the Clinton campaign, and yet they're there for photo for TV availabilities every hour. That's correct. Of a, of a, a camera in front of a place where they should be doing their research, and of course they're just too busy waiting for the stand up.
0: And, and that's what they do all day long. Now they don't even do reports anymore half the time. They're just there to be interviewed every hour. You know, they come online and, 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 and some, you know, and, and, and the host, you know, Wolf Blitzer says, so where are you now? What are you doing now? What's the candidate doing now? You don't hear him asking questions like, what are they saying? And is it true? And does it make any sense? And what, what effect is, does it have on the crowd? They don't know. They're not with the crowd. They're standing outside at the truck. You know, half the time, I would say most of the time, they're not even in there with the candidate.
1: Right. The producer might be inside, comes out and whispers something yeah. in their ear, if they have a producer, and then they, they sort of regurgitate it as if they're, they're doing the research.
0: That's right. And, and you're even starting to see that in newscasts nowadays. I don't know if you've watched any local CBC newscasts lately, but the reporters basically don't report anymore. What they do is they go to... Theoretically, where a story is, and then they st- and then they get interviewed by the host. You know, someone throws some some uh, pictures over it as if, you, know, I, you know, I I question whether whether the reporter was even there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, to me, I'm always we we've seen a couple of examples so far, but I'm I I just cringe every time with live TV now because we haven't seen unfortunately the the, the real potential for it where a person is standing there live they're not really prepared they haven't scoped the place out and somebody in the background does stuff and you know, we've had some examples of that but I'm just really <laughs> afraid of of somebody doing something really dramatic on air live on air and we'd have no way, no ability to, to to counter that if if you know an ISIS person wanted to make a statement uh, there's lots of live. Reports Reporters standing there in front of cameras that people wouldn't know what to do before it happened.
0: Absolutely, and and and, uh, you know, I I mean, in a strange way, it's not getting on air, but we're seeing it more and more, uh, and not with, not thankfully, not with anything like ISIS. But you know, when when we're hearing what people are yelling at the female reporters while they're trying to report, there's no reason why an ISIS person couldn't do something similar.
1: <laughs> I, was, I was listening to the, uh, the CBC National, I think it was a news, uh, what we used to call News World, CBC News Network right now, and the guy was the anchor, and they had just come back from an Obama press availability, and the anchor said, and after that beautifully crafted speech from Obama, <laughs> blah, 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 where are we in terms of fairness and editorializing on air now by people who really aren't supposed to?
0: Um. It's, I have to tell you, almost every journalist that that I know who's been around a while is asking that same question. Even worse than that, uh, in, in a sense, because those people are just trying to fill time and sometimes they say something stupid that they shouldn't say that turns out to be editorial, but they really haven't thought about it. More important, you know, I mean, you go on CBC online now and you've got reporters writing opinion pieces. That was... CBC, Reporters Radio, that was never
1: allowed. Yeah, I, I listened to the, the, the radio national news in the morning, and David Common is, was a pretty good reporter, and I've known him for a number of years, if I would consider him a friend. I mean, they're clearly pushing him to editorialize on the stuff that, he's, cover- that he, he's supposed to be announcing. I mean, Lord, help us, the days of CBC Radio in the old days, if you had said anything that remotely sounded like opinion, that, you know, you'd have been out before you knew what was going on.
0: If, if you open CBC Online, you will see opinion pieces by Neil MacDonald about Canadian politics on an almost daily basis. That was totally verboten. You weren't allowed to have an opinion. You you weren't allowed, uh, public opinion, that is. You you weren't allowed to say anything. You had to cover the story and and be, uh, I wouldn't say neutral, but you, you had to be objective, Nowadays, that, that objectivity has gone down the toilet. Someone has said, you know, I'm guessing this because I haven't heard it, but someone's obviously said, you know, we need to make some news on our own. So all of a sudden, we're, we've come to the point where where reporters are, are out there making news as well as, as, well as reporting the news. And, and, of course, you talk to anyone who's my age and they'll say, that's absolutely rotten. It doesn't belong in the business, but it's there, and there's and and and, and no one seems to care or, or say anything about it.
1: Talking to Howard Bernstein, veteran uh, journalist, uh, as I say, the man to blame uh, who put me into television, put me <laughs> on the air. <laughs> Point fingers at him. You're listening to not the public podcast, Bruce Dobigan with you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it, one of the things that that sort of strikes me when I when I watch the the broadcast today too is is just you're talking about the r- reporters. I mean. The sense of the reporter, uh, her name has escaped me for the moment, but the woman who was, gra- who was grabbed by uh, Trump's manager and pulled aside, yep. and, and then Daniel Dale complaining about how he was treated by uh, uh, Rob Ford, etc. All of a sudden, we're in this sense of what you just got to, which is reporters being at the heart of the story. And, and I have a huge problem with that. I, I'm not saying that people should be able to grab a reporter and pull him out of the way, but you know what? In the old days... That was just the price we paid for being close to the story.
0: Bruce, when you were at CBC, what we used to teach was that the reporter is not allowed to be part of the story. You know, so if you had a problem, you dealt with it not on camera. You didn't sue anyone. You might have gone and spoken to someone and say, you know, I didn't appreciate that. But the public would never have found out. It just it would never have come up.
1: Yeah, the, 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 the Trump manager thing is just—I mean, you know—I uh, saw the video, and I don't know how many times I could push pushed aside. I mean, Alan Eagleson accused me of beating my wife. I had—I had death threats. I had in very, seriously a death threat one time when I was reporting a story. But you know, we never—we never reported that, and yet all of a sudden now there's people in the newsrooms who say, "Oh, really? Oh, let's make that into a story."
0: I, I, and I don't know where this comes from. I, you know, and I say the, all I can read into it is that someone is saying, you know, we can get better ratings if we, if if our reporters are now stars. And the way to make them stars is to make the stories about them. That, I, I don't know how else to read it. Um, it used to be that if you were a reporter, pretty much very few, no one knew who you were. You had to be the host of a show, the newsreader, the sportscaster, the weather guy, for anyone to recognize you. Now, the idea has, has taken over TV that everyone on air has to be a star. They have to have star qualities. They have to, and, and how do you do that if, if you're only doing a 10-second a, a, a stand-up in a piece? Well, the way you do it is to make yourself part of the piece.
1: Uh, Howard, we're agreeing on too much here. That's quite unlike you and I.
0: Yes, it is. It's very unlike you and I. Uh, I,
1: I mentioned briefly Daniel, uh, Daniel Dale, I believe is his name, who was the reporter for the Toronto Star. Uh, I've, I've written a fair bit on the website about my thoughts on how the the Rob Ford story was covered by the Toronto media. How fair do you think the coverage was of Rob Ford?
0: You know... That's a tough one to answer because you have to know you're you're listening to two sides of every story. You know, uh, it's it doesn't sound right when there's when there's a reporter rummaging around in your backyard. It sounds like that shouldn't be the case. It sounds like you're 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 intruding on his privacy. But then the reporter says, but I wasn't in his backyard. I was in the, the lot next door. I was just trying to do my job. I don't know specifically the answer. What I know is, is that the Toronto Star, especially, went too far with 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 Rob Ford. They turned, I think, somewhere along the line, um, they saw it as a ratings grabber. They could sell more newspapers by, by writing all kinds of terrible things about Rob Ford. Having said that, the other side of that story is. What's happened since he died? I mean, Rob Ford has become has been all of a sudden you know he's this you know he's this man of the people, this wonderful guy that was totally misunderstood oh sure he he did a few things that weren't so nice, but you know all in all, no one fought for Torontonians more than he did. The truth is obviously somewhere in the middle between the two of them i, I don't I'm not a big fan of of turning. People into heroes just because they died. I, I had a, a massive argument with a good friend of ours when, when, when uh, uh, Steve Pagan, when, when uh, um, Richard Nixon died, because Steve went into, you know wrote this thing about Richard Nixon being you know what a great president and all, and I'm saying like hang on a second. I was he was a kid, but I was working in the business at that time. He was not a great, per- I mean, did he do some good things? Absolutely. I don't question that. He, You know, he opened relations with China. But the truth is, he was a nasty human being who was more than a little bit of a racist and, 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 and was, uh, you know, didn't trust anyone, even the people around him. So I have no problem with when Richard Nixon dies saying, you know what? He was a pretty nasty guy and difficult to work with and, and maybe not one of our best presidents, but he also did some good things. But to turning Rob Ford now into some kind of sainted uh, former mayor who, who was the last guy to care about the little guy and and, man, and a man of the people, that's going too far as well. So I think what you're talking about in the end is a symptom of what's going on in the newspaper industry, what's going on in journalism. We care more about the selling TVs and selling newspapers and getting eyeballs than we do about the story anymore. And what that and what It's
1: as if every day when they come in that the story can be new every day. And, and Rob Ford dead, oh, then he's a nice guy. But Rob Ford before, bad guy. And, and, you know, somehow he rose from the dead on the third day and came out and, and, and you know... Killed a dog with his car. He'd be. I mean, they literally seem to be making value judgments on stories on a daily basis.
0: But are they making value judgments because they believe them, or are they making value judgments because they think it's going to sell newspapers? So you know, everyone is feeling sorry for Rob Ford and Rob Ford's family. This is a good time to say all these nice things and sell more to newspapers. Every everyone is upset at Rob Ford because of of the drug allegations and all the other things, and everyone hates him. So let's jump on that bandwagon and turn him into a demon, because it sells more newspapers. You know, I know I mean, a
1: newspaper not named the Toronto Star that when when the Fu- when they got basically got, we're getting beat on the story. Uh, dug up a story which they had buried 18 months before because they didn't think it had the the, the chops to go. They didn't think that they had, had written it well enough. And all of a sudden it became, okay, you know what? It's good enough to go now. I mean, that's just, to me, that was the frenzy around Rob Ford. And and I always say that at the same time, at the parallel time, we had Ben Levin, who was basically the senior bureaucrat in the education department, being charged with pedophilia. And, you know, you'd have to look on page six to find some of this sort of stuff. Uh, It just seemed to me that the even handedness it wasn't there. And for me, you know, when I talk about stuff, I I don't think any story is unbiased. Just the fact I'm bringing it to somebody is a bias. On the other hand, I think you have to be fair, which means give both sides of the story. And the Rob Ford story and the Ben Levin story, to me, were just like, huh? Is this is this the
0: same code of ethics? But when you look at it, what, what what's going on? What's going on is is that the man in the street has no idea who Ben Levin is. It's not going to sell newspapers. The 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 everyone knows who Rob Ford is. You're going to, you know, you go after them and you're going to sell newspapers. It's a financial decision as much as it is an editorial decision, maybe even more than it is an editorial decision. I'm sure what I'm sure someone said, hey, you know, we did this. We did these stories, you know, knocking the hell out of out of Rob Ford and and we sold 20,000 more papers today. Maybe we should continue to do it and sell 20,000 more papers tomorrow. Those are the way decisions seem to be made today. I understand that the business is financially in big trouble. Having said that, you're not going to, you know, in the end, what you're losing is all your credibility. You you know, Rob, for, as someone who didn't live in downtown Toronto at the time, I understood why people voted for Rob Ford. I understood... The divide between downtown and the suburbs. And finally, you had this guy who came along who cared about the suburbs. Um, Probably the second mayor in Toronto's history who ever cared about the the suburbs. Mel Lastman being the first because he was a mayor from the suburbs. Um, So, you know... that part of the story wasn't told. The, the part of the story where where uh, we had a previous mayor who, who was wasting money more than probably any mayor in the history of Toronto created Rob Ford. That story wasn't told either because, you know, uh, the previous mayor was a tall, good-looking guy, and as everyone says, with great hair. I can say that with a little bit of jealousy. Um, <laughs> I, and, and he was you know quite left wing and he spoke to downtowners, so all of his faults went unpunished and and that's the kind of but but was and here's the question that I don't know the answer to was that because of an editorial bias or was that because they didn't think that could sell and 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 my fear is I worry less especially in newspapers about an editorial bias that you know th- that I do about saying stuff that's going to sell because and e- newspapers I don't mind a newspaper having editorial bias you know that you, you, you well growing up I always knew that the Toronto Star was leaned left I always knew that the Globe and Mail le- leaned slightly right at least in a business sense uh and and and, uh, and I knew the Toronto Sun was on the right it was okay cuz you knew where they were coming from um So, but in television, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, CBC especially should have no bias uh, that's visible on air, at least.
1: Yeah, you're bringing Uh, up an interesting point, too. And and again, I get back to when I walked through the doors of the newsroom, 1984, there was Bill Copps, there was Bill Harrington. Uh, there were guys who had been there a long time, and I wouldn't describe them as Tony products of J School or whatever. There were a lot of men and women in that newsroom who came from somewhere else. If, if I have a gripe today with it, and it gets back to your point about deciding what's going to happen every day, is that the people who were in TV and, and, and newspaper newsrooms at the moment – they, they all think the same. They come from the same place. They go to Pusa Terry's. They say, hey, how are you doing that? Rob Ford, what a schmuck. And you know, you know, where, where are the working class people who would inform the editorial decisions at the Star, at the Globe, uh, at the, the Calgary Herald and those places? They don't exist anymore.
0: Well, it's because everyone's a, great, a J School graduate nowadays, right? I mean, everyone's come through the, the journalism school system. Um and, and and uh the, the journalism school if if look they're they're well educated they really know what they're doing the, these kids but here's my problem with with journalism school when you and I were in it there were I don't can't think of a single person who was a graduate of journalism school we worked with there may have been but I don't if there were I don't know I didn't know that what happens in journalism school is you learn how to do things but you don't learn things. You don't know anything about anything. My biggest complaint, and I taught at journalism school for, for, for uh, way too many years, almost 10 years. And my big complaint was, you're graduating someone, they've spent four years learning how to shoot, how to edit, how to write, but they haven't learned economics. They haven't learned politics. They haven't learned science. They haven't learned history. What, 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 What's behind what they have to say, and then you have to ask the question that leads to where you came. Where your question came from? Why did they get into journalism? Most of them, it looks like for me, got into journalism because, you know, isn't it great to be on television? I mean, I can be a star.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Listen. I, and 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 the thing that scares me when I when I talk to people is there is that assumption that there is nothing else but... The, their assumptions about the world are the only assumptions that there are. The, in Canada, we have absolutely no right-wing equivalent of Fox TV, whether you like Fox or not. But if you, if you watch Fox and you watch the other ones, you, you're going to get a sense of that there is a balance. The problem with most of the Canadian journalism and the kids who are in, in newsrooms now is their assumption is that what they see in their life at, at Avenue Road in Lawrence is the
0: entire world. I, I can't disagree. Um, and, and I go one step further. You mentioned, you know, that, that kind of, uh, elitism that, that, that exists there. A lot of it has to do, and, and, and you know what? And I hate to say this, but CBC is the worst offender. And, 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 and I hate to, again, agree with you on everything. But, um, but, but, but the bottom line is you walk through CBC and it feels like, Everyone is someone famous's son or someone famous's daughter or someone famous's niece or someone famous's nephew or has connections. Uh, and, and you say to yourself, how does a kid from, you know, like me from Park Extension get to be on TV anymore? Or get to even working TV anyway I,
1: I agree with you 100. I don't know how do you get the Victor Mallerick kind of people to get them on TV, or even a Bill Cop bill Cops, CBC News. Yeah. You know, one of those grizzled guys who, who. And 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 the thing about those people, and, you know, we're going to agree on something again, but <laughs> th- those guys were totally unaffected by being on TV. Bill Copps would go home at the end of the day, and he wouldn't be all thrilled. Hey, look at me on TV, and sit there with his family and watch it, Bill. He probably went and curled or had a few beers or whatever. It was just his job. And but the people today, it's like you know they're they're building some sort of resume that's going to get them, uh, you know, on on American Idol or something.
0: Yeah, it, it's they're posing. Frankly, is what they're doing. They're posing. You know, it's it's like they have to have the, uh, you know. It. I never saw Bill Copps wearing a tailored suit. <laughs> <laughs> or a clean shirt. <laughs> or a clean shirt, yeah. Um, but, you know, he did the job, and he did the job for more years than than, than I care to, to know. I mean, he, he was there for, uh, not at CBC, but he was covering the news for over 40 years, you know. Yeah, yeah. Talking
1: with Howard Bernstein, veteran uh, journalist, producer. Uh, been there, done that. He got the T-shirt every place. Uh, this is not the public podcast. Bruce Dobing with you. Let, let's finish up with uh, we talked about Donald Trump just briefly earlier. How has the Donald Trump phenomenon changed journalism?
0: I think it's brought it, it's brought all the things we've been talking about to a head. Um, I, you have to feel sorry in some ways because of what journalism has done for the the Kasichs and Jeb Bushes and, 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 and to a certain extent, Uh, Ted Cruz's of this world, and not to mention, you know, even the Democrats who can't get on TV because people like CNN uh, and and ABC, NBC, CBS, they understand if I put him on the air, every time I put him on the air, my numbers are going to go up. No one stops and says, Yeah, but does he have anything to say? So I think it's, it's, it's in many ways cheapened journalism. Uh, I think what, that's one of the things he's done. Has he done it on purpose? No, he's used what they've made available to him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's and, and, and... Uh, the, um, yes, he's done it on purpose, but they made it available to him. They could have easily said no. Sorry, I didn't hear that.
1: Yeah, no, I was just going to say that the, 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 the thing is is also about, are we going to now start mining... Television and and the media for people who to go into politics. In other words, does this kickstart a Kevin O'Leary kind of person in Canada?
0: Well, I mean, it obviously did give Kevin O'Leary ideas. So, so he really thinks he can be the Donald Trump of Canada. Um, I, the pity in all of this. Is not the success of Don uh, 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 of Trump the the pity in all of this is the lack of serious looking at the the issues and the politics around all the candidates. So Donald Trump can get away with going on TV and literally whenever he's asked a question, saying, "Oh, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to do. What are you going to do? Whatever I do, it's going to be great." Who are you going to hire to do it? I will hire only the best people. No specific answers about anything. And, and, and I can't imagine that in the future people won't look at this and say, wow, you know, the less information you give, the less trouble you can get into. So, so I, and, and if the media is going to allow you to do that, why wouldn't you do that? Why should I tell... You know, why should I fall into the same situation that most politicians fall into, which is making all these promises that in the end you can't keep because, uh, you know, you're only making the promises because you think it's what people want to hear. Well, you don't have to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, I did did a column a couple of weeks ago for my usual suspects column in which I basically said that the, 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 the current political requirements for running for office, the best thing you can do is have no record whatsoever going in. Obama was the perfect candidate to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Rubio was an excellent candidate because when you go out there, they can't nail you with, oh, well, you shut down this factory, or they can't nail you with, in in Romney's case, that you started a a, a Medicare thing in in Massachusetts. It's saying more and more that the best candidate is the person who has absolutely no record at all because then you can't rip them for anything.
0: And add to that, Bruce, that so if you've never done anything, and there's nothing I can rip you for, and then you go on the campaign trail, and you don't say anything. Then what do you? What's there to criticize? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. On the, on the other hand, I I I think the whole thing is sort of backwards. We 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 put these th- these people through policy hell so that they're really, that most of them are really good at, it and they tell you this, they tell you that, and and yet when we elect a prime minister, when we elect a president, when whatever it is. The, at the end of the day, what we're electing is a person that we hope when when the circumstances change, we'll be ready for it. I always remember Macmillan's famous expression, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, and they said, what is it you fear most? He said, events, boy, events.
0: yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Is somebody who's going to face events that none of us can foresee, and all of the stuff that we've vetted them on before goes out the window right away. So in some senses, I understand not having a record or having a record or not having a record doesn't really matter when you get the 3 o'clock phone call, the way Hillary Clinton did with Benghazi, and she rolled over
0: and went back to bed. Okay, but the conventional wisdom right now uh, seems to be that they'll grow into the job. No matter what the job is, they'll grow into it. Um, and, 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 and it's most of the time, you know, are, are they growing into it or, or, or are we only hearing their side of the story after they're in the job? Yeah.
1: Well, and, and I think that's the, the classic example of what I'm saying. Of course, is Justin Trudeau. We'll see. He's got another four years to uh, to prove his mettle, et cetera. When when I don't think he's had any particular crisis come yet, so he's he's still sailing on on the election, uh, the honeymoon of the election. And and he may turn around and, and, and actually know what to do, or he may be a disaster. But that's 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 going to be a great example in Canada how the media will cover him because the media loved him to death. He was all pretty with the handsome stuff and doing the yoga poses and all that. How will they cover him when? that moment comes and he either fails or he succeeds
0: well as as you know because we spoke i'm not a big fan of of justin truos and never and i wasn't before you know before he ran and i didn't support him when he ran Um, but but having said that whenever i mention that to people the answer i always get is oh but he'll have good people around him you know I, i maybe maybe not but the buck has to stop somewhere and, and, and uh, I prefer the buck stopped at someone with, uh, with some experience but hey, that's me and I'm obviously an old fart who uh, belongs in a different age <laughs> and on that
1: note, I think we found ourselves back where we started from belonging in a different age. Uh, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. Always interesting to talk about journalism with somebody who's, who's been there and has perspective and perspective is a big word and hopefully uh, we'll get you back again and we'll do another podcast soon.
0: That'll be great. Take care, Bruce.
1: All the best, Howard. Thanks.
0: Bye-bye.